All right, here we go. Walking in the light. This is the last series, the last message in our First John series, and it's really been a good one. Last week we covered the three witnesses. Do you remember that? It said, "For there are three that testify: the Spirit, the water, and the blood." And these three agree. And by the way, if that makes no sense to you whatsoever, go back to our website, pull up the message, listen to that one, and then this will connect for you. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his son. We saw that he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. And the whole theme of these verses is about whoever believes in the Son and the opportunity that's there to give your life to Jesus Christ in a surrendered and living way, in a way that you come to him with a full heart. And now John turns his attention to the church. And we'll wrap up our series of walking in the light this morning by looking at that. Uh, As we do, I think we should stop and just pray and thank the Lord uh, for this series. A lot of you have told me how you have heard from the Lord in this series that's been super encouraging. So let's seek the Lord, all right? Father in heaven, we come to you this morning with a heart of gratefulness. Thank you for being really kind. Thank you for speaking during this series. Thank you for uh, whispering and talking to people, highlighting points and, and pulling things out that people came away with great encouragement with, with great, that you had a word for them out of this series. Lord, we look for that again this morning as We wrap this up. May you be among us. Your manifest presence is welcome, and we seek you for that in your name. Amen. All right. All right, take your Bibles, turn there, or your phone, or whatever you use. We're starting in verse 13. John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John's whole purpose for writing this epistle is so that we would know, in other words, have confidence that we have eternal life, that we we would not be walking around, oh, I hope, I guess, you know, uh, there's an old thing, Lord, when you go fishing, I hope when you catch me in the net, I'm big enough to keep kind of thing. We we don't want to have that kind of spirit. We want to have confidence that we actually know the Lord and have eternal life. The commentaries, when you look them up, all point to the connection of this statement with the statement of the purpose that's found in John's gospel. So if you've got a finger there and you want to turn to John's gospel, John chapter 20, he's concluding his gospel, you're wrapping it all up, and he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Notice that this one is evangelistic, right? It's so that you would believe. These are written that you would have evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be. So it's, it's as I said, evangelistic. Um, notice that the, John's epistle is written uh, from the angle of those who already believe. It's written to believers so that they, us, and you may know that they, us, have eternal life. And John wants them to have assurance and confidence in what Jesus has done for them. He wants them to know whom they have believed. Remember that old hymn? We're going to look at uh, four big ticket items this morning. Uh, John closes this epistle, and here's the ones we're going to look at. So the first one is answers to prayer. Second one is the unpardonable sin. That'll be fun. 
Third one is believers don't keep on sinning. That'll be more fun. Fourth is keep yourself from idols, right? So we're going to look at those together. Now, needless to say, just qualifier here. I think you're smart enough to understand that there's no way you can get all four of those in one 35-minute message, right? With any kind of depth of reality. We will do our best to lay it out and, and kind of lay the landscape of it, but uh, there's so much more to these four than we can cover this morning. But we're going to take our best shot at it, all right? So here we go. Let's start with the first one. Verse 14 and 15, John says this, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, before we dive into this, it should be noticed that John is not operating in a vacuum here, right? He didn't just pull this off the top of his head. He's pulling from what Jesus had taught them as disciples, and it's found in John 14. So take a look at John 14. Here's what Jesus says in John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And then there's this tagline. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now note that the purpose of praying and prayers being answered is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That should give you a clue right there. If you're praying prayers to the Lord that are for your self-glorification, the odds are pretty good that's not going to work. Prayers are meant to be for the fact that the Father gets glorified in the Son. So how does that work? Well, Jesus is speaking collectively to the disciples as a group, and they would go on to accomplish greater works than he had done. But notice it also includes us. The whoever believes in me part. It wasn't just located to the disciples. It was located for all the people, all the generations that would come after them. Now, if you're like me, you're probably sitting there thinking this morning, well, I've never raised anybody from the dead. Well, I've never healed a leper. I've never helped a blind person regain their sight. I've never led thousands to Christ. In what possible way is this true? And the easy way out is to just simply say, well, this was a dispensation, right? If you go into theology and study theology, there's, they would say there's different eras or different dispensations when things were at work and the prophetic gifts and callings ended with the apostle and that they're no longer in play. And the problem with that is that I personally know of many stories where this is not true, that God is engaged on these levels today. I've seen God do miraculous things through and with other people. Don't have enough time for stories today, but I've seen it. So how do you answer this? Let me tell you what my answer is. Great theological insight right here. Get your pens out. I don't know. I've studied this for 40 years. I don't know. But my absolute best answer for us is that we should fully believe Jesus that what he said is true. That prayer is vital and necessary. That we should always seek him with all our hearts and believe that he hears all our prayers. And that you don't have to be perfect in praying. 
You don't have to be some theological genius to pray to God. You can be praying on child's language. Dear dad, I have no clue what to do right now. That's a, that's a very good prayer in this COVID world we live in right now. But we should always seek him with all our hearts and believe that he hears all our prayers. And that ties into the second part. The second part is the question we have as humans, well, okay, pause, time out. What about all the prayers that go unanswered? Right? Now, first of all, the question is, do they actually go unanswered? And one of the problems we have as humans is that timing is a booger for us. Right? Uh, our time and God's time are usually not the same thing. Have you ever noticed that? Or is that just true for me? All right, well, I'm glad others are with me. Jesus specifically says that if you ask anything in his name, he will do it. Praying in his name, if you think about lining up, means I'm lined up with Jesus' heart and goal. So the first thing there is if you want your prayers answered, you need to line your heart up with him. That means you need to get under his authority, get in relationship with him, ask him to save you, and actually be in the same ballpark as he is. Right? That's one part of this equation. This specifically points us again to always pray. Never quit praying. Pray in the name of Jesus. Let's go back to that passage in 1 John, and we'll show you some more pieces that tie into this. Let's reread that again. It says, this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. The phrase that stands out in this passage is according to his will. Did you see that in there? If we ask anything according to his will. In other words, if I'm in healthy, a place of healthy surrender and under his authority, and I want his absolute best, thy will be done, then John is saying you can have great confidence that God hears your prayers and that Jesus will answer those prayers. One final word on this. Uh, we have to be mature on this as well. I think we have to realize the answers to our prayers may not always be yes. One of the reasons we may think that God hasn't answered our prayers is that he actually has, but he told us no. And we don't like that answer. So then we pout and say, well, you didn't answer my prayer. Well, that's not true. He may have answered it. He, you may just not wanted to hear what he answered. Right? Second thing is that um, he may say not now because he knows the timing's not right, right? I have a bunch of stories in my life where I thought this timing was perfect. <laughs> Come back three, four years later, bingo. Like, what was the difference, right? And um, it's a funny thing. Prayer and patience have an odd way of walking together with each other. Anybody else notice that? Okay. And if you're not good with the patience thing, Usually you won't be good with the prayer thing. You've got to have those two together. All right, so much more to be covered. Let's go on to the next thorny issue. Issue number two. Second, you're saying you didn't answer all my questions. Yes, I know, we're moving on. All right. Second point, the unpardonable sin. Here's a good one. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he should ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. In here, John introduces a category that um, 
the scope of this topic is ginormous, right? This has occupied the mind of the church for 2,000 years. What is the unpardonable sin? And have I committed it? Right? Oh my gosh. You know, what do we do? What do we do? This passage uh, has caused anxiety among believers for centuries. What is troubling is that John does not list what the unpardonable sin is. He doesn't say. He just says, hey, there's a sin. You should not pray for that. Okay? Because it's the unpardonable sin. He doesn't tell us actually what it is. He just says, don't pray for one caught in such a sin. So how do you know if they're in such a sin if you don't know what it is so that you know what you're not supposed to pray for? We are to pray for people when we see them caught in sins. He says, now there's all kinds of other sins that don't lead to death. You should pray for that. Okay? You should lift them up. You should seek for them. Uh, but John admonished not to pray for the person who's committing the unpardonable sin. So just what is that exactly? And here's the thing. We find a hint in the Gospels. Jesus didn't get mad or angry often, right? One of the great reasons you should read the Gospels is just to get familiar with Jesus as a person. Um, but what you find out, he, he didn't get mad or angry often. But when he does, it's worth paying attention to what angered him, what got him riled up. We're well aware of the cleansing of the temple events, right? He says, you've made my father's house a market. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. And he, he drove them all, and he got really upset. Says, zeal for thy house will consume thee. But the other thing that really angered Jesus, and you can find this in all four Gospels, is that when, when his enemies either discredited or maligned the Holy Spirit, you find Jesus getting really irate. And what they did by this, and what they did is they said, oh yeah, he casts out demons, he does all this money. But the spirit by which he casts out demons, and the wording there is key, the spirit by which he casts out demons is by the spirit of Beelzebub. In other words, he's just the leader of the pack. He leads by Satan, so he uses the bigger demon to cast out the minor demons. This did not sit well with Jesus and visibly upset him. We even get more clarity on this from Jesus' own words when he makes this evaluation off that incident. You see it up on the screen here, Mark chapter 3. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is stated in a similar way in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So someone who speaks against the Son of Man, someone who speaks against Jesus and can even go to the point of uttering blasphemies can be forgiven. That's an amazing thought, right? But that is not true of the Holy Spirit. Why is this so? Because one, the Holy Spirit is just that, holy. And two, to equate him with the devil is the utmost offense because it's the exact opposite of his ministry. 
Secondly, the Holy Spirit is the witness for who Jesus is as the Savior of the world. If you deny the Holy Spirit, then you deny Jesus as Savior, and thus it becomes an unpardonable sin because you openly refuse the salvation that is offered by him. No one can come to Jesus except by the Holy Spirit. We're aware of that. So if you reject the Holy Spirit, you reject the one connection that can lead you to eternal life. When John tells us that all wrongdoing is sin, but there is, a, but there is a sin that does not lead to death, he's letting us know that all sin is wrong and bad, but that it can be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not one of those. Again, it must be stated clearly that the Holy Spirit is our friend. And, abs- and he is an absolutely trustworthy guide. That voice inside you says, let go of that, move towards Jesus. That's your friend. Very needed, very necessary. We are to trust him, not blaspheme him. All right, let's go on to the third point. Third point is equally interesting. Believers will not keep on sinning. John says this, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. These verses have proved no less contentious than the verses we just went through. And for an obvious reason. What Christian hasn't sinned since they came to know Christ? Anybody in here? No hands, right? Me either. We indeed live in a fallen world. John says we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But although we live in this fallen world and it is under the control of the evil one, we are protected by God. He, Jesus, who was born of God, protects him. The evil one does not touch him. Uh, John had this idea laid out in chapter 3, if you remember. Let's go back to chapter 3 and just remind ourselves of what he laid out back there. In chapter 3, John said this, Everyone who makes a practice, and the key word here is going to be this word practice, We all know what it means to practice, whether it's a sport, an instrument, whatever. We've all practiced things in our life. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Uh, Another word would be trespassing, right? We practice trespassing. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. That him there is Jesus. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John consistently holds up the high moral ethical stance that should be that of the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. The Expositor's Bible Commentary had a really neat layout of this. Uh, It points out the consistency of John's message throughout this epistle. Uh, Here's John's points uh, in his epistle. It says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. We know that we are children of God, and that we know God has come and given us certain definite knowledge about himself. Therefore, Christians must not walk in darkness. Number two, 
They must not hate their fellow believers. A huge chunk of the epistle is about, and I spoke about this, James spoke about this, we talked about it together, about we have to love each other. We get to love each other. If we're in Jesus, we love each other. So we must not hate our fellow believers. And so the whole issue of letting go of forgiveness, right? Uh, I watched a video. You ever watch one of those videos? person spends 23 minutes in hell and has a message from God. And I watched one the other day. And uh, a gal was down there. And the, the story was she was in hell for a reason that she had not anticipated. She was a, a good churchgoer. Uh, she tithed regularly. She served and helped people. Uh, did read her Bible, quiet times, did all that kind of stuff. Uh, and she couldn't figure out why she was in hell, and the Lord pointed out her, she had been unwilling to forgive the people in her life. And she was shocked. She shouldn't be. Because Jesus says right after the Lord's Prayer, if you forgive men their sins against you, then your Father in heaven will forgive you also. But if you do not forgive others their sins, then neither will the Lord forgive you. We need to be about the business of forgiveness. And John here is underlining this and highlighting this, that we must not live a life of sin. So let's go back to the beginning point. If we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, what does it mean if I know I have chosen sin in my life? What if this week I just botched it? The heck with the Lord. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I really don't care. And I'm just going to walk across the line. Fortunately, John gives us the remedy in this very epistle. Do you remember chapter 1? I know that seems like a long time ago, right? But we're kind of recapping here. Do you remember chapter 1? John says this in verse 5 and 6. This is the message we've heard from him and that we proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The Bible tells us that if we have a brother or sister that just walks off in sin, we're not to associate with them. That there should be a difference between the believers and the unbelievers. That those who claim Christ should walk in the light. Now that is a challenge and a half, right? We know that. And so what is John saying here? Stop lying. Stop walking in the darkness. Start practicing, there's that word again, start practicing the truth is the encouragement that we receive from him. Then he goes on to say this in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We can be washed. We can be clean. We have to learn. That means it's a process, right? We get to practice. We get to learn to walk in the light. That's what sanctification is all about. It's the process where I become more and more like Jesus. And if you're saying, well, you don't look very much like Jesus yet, Steve. I'm going, yeah, but you should have seen me 40 years ago. Okay? I look great compared to where I was 40 years ago. And so do you. Because God has taken you a long way. In other words, this process of sanctification has to become a habit. The old saying is that you get good at what you practice applies here. What have we practiced over the week? And what happens, and in spite of our practice and the good intent of our heart, what happens if I blow it? What happens if I go back to sin? What happens if I grab something I knew I shouldn't have grabbed? Well, John says this in verses 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 
And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So this means you simply have to identify your sin and own it. What is it? What are we guilty of? Put a name to it. Why am I not following Jesus? What's the specific, what would I label that? A lot of times when people come in and they're, I ask them, what would you call that? What, what would you label that as? And then I'll take them to the word and show them what God labels, labels it as. So it means we have to identify our sin. Call it for what it is. And then we must repent and move towards the truth. Repentance means that I move out of the shadows, out of darkness, and I move towards the light. I agree with Jesus and step towards what he's shown me. A very, uh, by the way, there's a very important principle at play in here, um, what John's talking about in this light and darkness part, and that, that's this. The power of sin is in its hiddenness. Okay? As long as I hide my sin, it has great control over me. Uh, it can talk to me. It can whisper to me. It can lie to me. It, can, it, it will say, you better not let anybody ever know that. You think they'd let you in the church? Oh, my goodness. You better, you better, my God, that's a bad one. You better not do that. But when I bring it to the light, when I let trusted people around me know what's going on, it no longer has any power over me. That power is broken. And that's why James says in his epistle, we'll jump to James here because he says a really great word about this. In chapter 5, the, the prayer of faith will save one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, in other words, sometimes sickness is a result of sin. Bad health is a result of sin. If he has sinned, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Notice the power of forgiveness there again. That was one of the things when I came to Christ. Wow. Just to be forgiven was the most unbelievable spot in life. Therefore, James says this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And that's saying when someone comes to us or someone comes to you or you go to someone and you confess a sin or someone comes and confesses a sin to you and you sit down and you kneel and you pray for them, there is tremendous power in that. There is something in that that is really healing and medicinal and healthy and better than medicine. Okay? There's something that's wonderful in that. When you sit down and share and someone prays for you that you would be broken and freed from that. It's an incredible thing. So what we're saying here is that a part of repentance is confession. It's actually getting that out and confessing to people and to the Lord. Confession is coming out from under the veil of darkness. Now, the question is, okay, I'll just confess to God. Well, why confess to another person, right? I have a direct relationship, right? Uh, priesthood of the believers. I can go directly to Jesus. I don't need an intermediary kind of stuff. And it's not talking about having a priest or confession in the Catholic sense of the word or anything like that. Why should I confess to another person? And here's the answer to that because of our enormous capacity to self-rationalize. We have an enormous capacity to lie to ourselves. We have enormous capacity to minimize. You ever notice how 
The same sin you're doing looks awful in other people and not so bad in you. Right? But when I confess to someone else, I have to bear the weight and weigh it for what it really is. And when you do that, now, is that easy to do? No. Is that something we, our flesh wants us to do? No. Is that something, you know, right now, you're going, ooh, 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 can we do that right now, Steve? Thank you so much. I, I just feel like I'm on, no. Right? But what does James say? What's the result if we do this? And the result is healing. Healing for what? Healing for my mind. Healing for my emotions. That I won't be tormented anymore inside of me. Another person praying for you has tremendous healing power for our spirits and our minds. How? John says, well, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse. Isn't that a beautiful word? Clean. Clean, like cleanse us, wash us from all unrighteousness. In other words, it's like working outside in the yard or on a car all day and you're just dirty and greasy and grubby and you go and take a shower and you're clean. You remember, ever done one of those where, oh, that felt so good. That's what it's saying it feels like when you go to the Lord and you confess, it's, I, felt, I hated to do it. Man, was that wonderful. Okay? That's what it's talking about there. That, my friends, is good news. Okay? That actually is really, really good news. We should celebrate that. All right, well, let's wrap up. John ends his epistle with this conclusion and warning. And he says this, and We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. All right, John is going back to his beginning. We know that the Son of God has come, that which we've heard, that which we've seen with our eyes, that's what we've looked upon, that's which we've touched with our hands. Jesus has come and given us understanding so that we may know what is true. John is, John is saying here, hang on to the truth that is in Jesus Christ. He is the truth, he is the foundation, and I think those are great, great words for us today. They may have been true for his church back there 2,000 years ago. They are awesome words for us as a church today. Hang on to Jesus at all costs. Do not move away from the truth of the gospel. Paul listed this, um, and he said, uh, oops, I'm ahead of myself. Don't go to that slide yet. Sorry. Okay. When he anchors it with this warning, little children, keep yourself from idols. Now, this may seem out of place, but it's not. Um, an idol is anything in my life that I place ahead of God. And that's what the Gnostics were doing. They were actually placing knowledge. They're teaching their knowledge higher than God and, and higher than the teaching of the gospel. John was warning Christians to stay away from them. Paul had the same concern for the Corinthian church. He said this, 2 Corinthians 11, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, and we have a lot of proclamation of other Jesuses in our culture today, another Jesus that, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul was chastising the Corinthian church going, how could you drift so quick? 
How could you so quickly get off track with Jesus when somebody else comes along with some storyline and some kind of thing that's completely different than what you learned in Jesus? He's demanding that they stay true to the gospel they heard. And do we not live in a world of false ideas and false gods? You don't have to even hunt for them anymore. They find you, right? Many of these are of our own making. John and Paul are imploring that we keep our eyes on Jesus the Christ, the forgiver of our sins, the giver of eternal life. In spite of the pressure that we're facing, he's asking them to stay focused on God, and I think that's a wonderful place for us to wrap up when he says this, little children, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray this morning. Father, big ideas, big stuff. I doubt that I've covered any of them in any serious depth or fashion, but Lord, if it got the idea out there, and Lord, we talking about these four points that are, are so significant, Lord, we seek you for today. We ask for us. Lord, John was speaking that to his congregation we would like you to speak that to us. Help us in these four things, and we give that to you, great hope in your name. Amen.